Kindred Church is a Christian community gathering in Reno, Nevada. We employ a dialogical teaching style, but for the sake of privacy, we remove the participants' responses from the recording. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about the church and for our service time, location, and virtual gathering options, visit kindredchurchreno.com. So today, we are going to continue to look into some more of Jesus' parables. And before we jump into the parables themselves, I just want to talk a little bit about the concept of parables as a whole and why Jesus uh, taught this way so often. So in Matthew chapter 13, verses 13 through 15, Jesus is quoted, and he says, um, This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing... They do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts. And I would turn and heal them. So when Jesus' disciples asked him why he spoke in parables, essentially asking like, hey, why don't you just like get to the point, (laughs) right? Like what's with the riddles? (laughs) Jesus replies by pointing out a certain condition of the human mind. And he quotes the book of Isaiah. He says that speaking, he's essentially saying that speaking in parables um, helps to get past the callousness of the heart. He's saying they hear without understanding, they see without perceiving. So in Jesus' mind, his reason for teaching teaching in parables is to somehow get past the callousness of the heart in order to help us understand and perceive something on a deeper level. And this is how Jesus fulfills that part of the Isaiah passage that he will turn and heal them. He's he's saying if, if he can somehow knock down our walls and slip past our defenses and kind of incept you know, the idea of the kingdom of heaven, then it will soften our hearts from the inside out. So as we talked a little bit about this last week, Jesus was not interested only in information transfer. Um, He was interested in imagination transfer. He wants us to get a vision for what the world could be like the way he envisions it. And he wants us to imagine the world the way he imagines it. So today our parables are going to be the wine and the wineskins. I'm sure you've heard that one before, the patch and the cloth, the mustard seed, and the leaven and the bread. And I'll read all four of them. They're really, really short, so don't worry about that. Um, and we'll kind of, we'll stay in the the patch and the cloth and the wine and the wineskins for most of today, and then I'll just kind of punctuate it with the uh, mustard seed and the yeast. So, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest garden of the garden plants, and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And he told them still another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. So the patch and the cloth, 
Jesus is just giving us tips on how to do the laundry. No? Sometimes I like to imagine that, like, Jesus was just giving helpful advice, and his disciples are like, so you're saying, like, we're the cloth? And he's like, uh, yeah, sure, Mark. <laughs> so what, what's he saying here? Like, what's the, what's the hidden meaning? What is he trying to incept into our imagination? So uh, you've got a garment that needs to be patched, but you can't use a patch made with unshrunk cloth. Because, like Jesus says, the patch shrinks, and it will pull away from the garment and make the tear worse. And with the new wine, why can't you put new wine into old wineskins? Well, as uh, wineskin is designed to hold wine as it fermented. So uh, as it fermented, it releases gases, and it would stretch the wineskin. And then once a wineskin has been used, though, it loses its elasticity. And if you try to ferment more wine in it, then it will rupture And as the gases start to build pressure inside the skin. So... You've got the unshrunk cloth on the old garment and the new wine in the old wineskin. So as we kind of try to figure out why Jesus was saying this and, and, and kind of where he was coming from, there's actually a little bit of a hint earlier in the passage in, in Matthew 9, uh, 14. It says uh, that John's disciples came to Jesus and asked him, how is it that, we, or yeah, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So Jesus is telling these parables in response to this question. And he actually has um, three little asides that he says right here. The other one that we haven't mentioned uh, yet is the part where he mentions the wedding guests and they shouldn't mourn when the, when the groom is present, uh, but there's a time where the groom will be absent and then they can fast and uh, pray then. So here's the exchange um, as I understand it. So John's disciples are curious why Jesus's disciples don't practice religion in the same way following the same rituals and disciplines they do. And Jesus's answer is essentially, look, like now is not the time for that. They only have me for a limited period of time and they need to soak up my presence as much as they can. They need to bond with me and laugh with me and eat with me. They need to remember what my hug feels like. They need to remember my smile and the sound of my laugh and the look on my face when I tell them I love them. And that's what this time is for. And beyond that, once I'm gone, things are going to be different. My disciples will be evolving and developing and progressing and pioneering new spiritual frontiers. And the religion that you practice is good and beautiful and honoring to God, but it doesn't have the flexibility to contain what's coming next. A fundamental shift must take place. Right? The kind of shift that redefines what it means to follow God. The kind of shift that reorients our whole perception of how God sees us. The kind of shift that blows up our entire definition for who or what God even is. Right? The kind of shift that will change the world forever. And that's true, right? right? The, the world has been changed forever by Jesus and his disciples, and we're living proof of that. Yeah, I think how this applies to us um, is that this kind of change is not only a past event. It's certainly true that the spiritual landscape changed drastically after Jesus' disciples uh, began to spread the message, but it's not done, right? The movement initiated by Jesus and his disciples has been moving through eras and cultures fluidly. Almost always, the practice of Christianity— morphs to meet the context 
of the time and space and people who are practicing it. And simultaneously, the space and people are changed by Christianity, right? By the religion. And that has always been an, uh, that has been an observable reality since basically the dawn of the Christian faith, right? And the, the truth is that at every interval, um, there will always be new wine and that will require a new wineskin. That's just part of the process. There will always be an old garment that can't be mended with a new patch. See, our, our religion, you know, Christianity, goes through these phases, these epics of change. And every time it does, there's tension, right? There's, consider uh, the founding of the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation and the mainline denominations and the American evangelical movement. Every time a shift happens like this, the change is so drastic that something new had to be born, right? It, it needed a new wineskin to be able to contain it. And the beautiful thing about this process um, is that all these major shifts in our tradition, you know, every time it happens, the entire spiritual landscape grows and becomes more diverse and complex. And it's important to remember that this parable that Jesus is, is saying, he's not saying get rid of the old wineskin or get rid of the old garment. Like we don't need those anymore. Those are, those are old and crummy and just like throw them out. He's not saying that. He's just saying this is not a receptacle for the new thing that's happening. An old garment needs a, a pre-shrunk patch, you know, and an old wineskin is made for fermented, you know, good fermented developed wine. That's what it's made for. But whenever something new is happening, it requires a new receptacle. Um, so now here we are. <laughs> Right? This is, in a big way, this is a, a new receptacle. Um, I know this is true for myself, and I assume is also true for several of you, but I think we are experiencing another shift. Another shift in our, our culture, in our faith, and just what it means to be Christian in this world. Being a Christian at this particular moment in history is confusing. <laughs> Right? Would you say? Would you agree? Yeah. So by show of hands, how many of you are familiar with the term deconstructing in regards to faith? Okay. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the term, it just essentially means to take apart a tradition or a belief or a practice for uh, the purpose of understanding whether it's actually true or whether you actually identify with it. And who would say that they have gone through or is going through the process of deconstructing right now? Yeah. Okay. Cool. That's what I anticipated. Sweet. <laughs> um, this is not isolated to us in this room, right? There's a major shift happening, specific, especially in our country and outside of it as well, where people are sifting through all the beliefs and traditions that we've inherited to see what they're made of, to see where they come from. And to see if they accurately articulate the experience of the divine and accurately inform the experience of being a Christian in this world. Now, the word deconstruction and the process of it is condemned by some. It's not uncommon to hear like, oh, you're abandoning the faith or, you know, you're leaving orthodoxy. And um, <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> 
Um, but I'll tell you, as someone who's been in this process for a while now, and I've worked through a lot of my inherited beliefs and traditions, I'm more secure in my identity as a Christian now than I've ever been. And I'm sure you, some of you can relate to that feeling, you know, finally feeling like there's congruence between my experience in life and the, the religion I practice and the faith that I have. So one of the things that for myself and um, for the rest of the Kindred Leadership team that we've been talking about and working through is um, what exactly is orthodoxy? Um, and in the sometimes swirling and disorienting um, process of deconstruction, it's important to stay grounded somewhere. So we were thinking a lot about like what that grounding is. So orthodoxy has sort of two working definitions. It has a technical definition. And then there's more of a colloquial definition that a lot of people mean when they use the word. And the technical definition of orthodoxy is thinking or teaching that adheres to the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, and Chalcedonian creeds. Um, And those creeds have all the usual stuff, you know, Jesus is the Son of God, died on the cross, resurrected from the dead, and that sort of thing. Now, the colloquial use of the word, um, and is what I think people mean a lot of the time when they're using it, Um, and especially when they say that something is against orthodoxy is thinking or teaching that adheres to all the stuff I believe, right? That's orthodoxy. If you agree with me, you're orthodox. If you disagree with me, that's against orthodoxy, right? Um, so, uh, what people, you know, when people often, when people say that you're going against orthodoxy or when people call something heresy or something like that, often it's actually happening because they're like, you know, they're thoughtfully considered and dearly held and passionately defended beliefs are being challenged. And that's totally understandable, really. I mean, I used to think that way for most of my ministry career, if I'm honest. And it was only when I was confronted with some of the discrepancies between my belief system and my actual experience in life. Um, and particularly when I was no longer comfortable ignoring those discrepancies that I started to consider the fact that I might be wrong about some stuff. And this process of reconsidering and and reconstructing and evolving and adapting is something that's near to the heart of of this community. You know, something that we want to be um, part of our community life. We want uh, to be a community that and a church that's more about unity than uniformity, right? Like we want kindred to be a church where you're free to explore your questions and doubts and openly and honestly in the context of community and like where you land uh, and what you end up believing doesn't threaten your eligibility to be part of this community. You know, we hope to be the kind of community that can hold a lot of different ideas simultaneously. And so for example, like on our leadership team, not everybody in the team holds the same, you know, ideas about like theology or eschatology or soteriology, that's totally fine. And here's why. Because we're not here, you know, to tell you what to believe. That's not what I'm trying to do. (laughs) Like our goal is to invite you into the process of belief, to facilitate conversations around our beliefs and to offer advice and support as you embark on your journey of belief. Because we're all just trying to figure out how to do life in this world and follow Jesus and kindred church hopefully is a place where um, all people 
can undergo that process no matter where you fall in that spectrum. So here's the thing. Um, one of the reasons we're so passionate about this process is not for us. It's for our children, right? We recognize that these kids are growing up in a very different world than we did. Like with the advent of wireless internet and the smartphone, the whole world changed. Everything changed. And these kids are going to be exposed to so much more information and ideas and opinions and agendas that we were never exposed to at their age. So they're going to need a space where they can reckon with their rapidly changing world while also figuring out how to be a Christian in it without judgment from, you know, from us. These kids, these kids are going to need a very flexible Christian community, right? As they enter into adolescence and adulthood. So in a big way, we're building a church for them. A church that can contain their journey and be flexible with their journey and elastic as they grow and change. So I just have one thing to say to close. Um, let's consider the parables of the mustard seed in the East, okay? The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through all the dough. So the kingdom of heaven starts small, right? It's almost invisible, almost imperceivable. The mustard seed looks like nothing more than a grain of sand, but it grows into a tree. It becomes a place where all people from all corners of the earth of all different stripes can find shelter in its branches. And just a little bit of yeast with time can work its way through the church and culture until the whole landscape is transformed. You see what I'm saying? Like this, there's this passage um, in the book of Acts where this guy named Gamaliel, uh, who is a member of the Sanhedrin, which is like the religious kind of council at the time. Um, he said something to the rest of Sanhedrin as they were discussing what they were going to do to stop Jesus' disciples. And he said, essentially, um, he said, listen, you know, if what these guys are doing, the disciples, is not from God, then it's going to fail and we have nothing to worry about. But if it is from God, then it will succeed and we will be found to be opposing God. And roughly 2,000 years later, we can testify that it indeed was from God, right? So I say that to point out that every new patch and every new vintage along the way was from God too. And we hope and pray as a community that Kindred Church would be a fresh wineskin for God to fill and do something new in our spiritual landscape. That God would do something new here, something fresh and something that can that, that we would be a receptacle that can hold the new wine. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed what you just heard. Kindred Church is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you find value in the ministry of Kindred Church and would like to contribute to our efforts, visit kindredchurchreno.com to donate. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email kindredchurchreno at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.